Now would you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, where we left off the last time in our study on Sunday mornings. We had finished the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The words of Jesus, marvelous words, powerful words, important words, that Jesus relayed the kingdom message that he wanted to share with his people, with us in this present hour, as well as those who were there on that mountainside almost 2,000 years ago. He taught them in a way that nobody else had ever done. In fact, the end of chapter 7, remember, Matthew recorded for us that everybody was so astounded by his, his teaching ability. They wondered, they marveled at his ability to proclaim the things that he had proclaimed. And they said, nobody ever has spoken like this man has spoken. Nobody can teach like this man can teach. They were astounded at his teaching, including scribes and Pharisees who were all with them and a great multitude that were gathering together near the town of Capernaum where Jesus had been setting up his home office, if you will. That was his point of ministry in the region of Galilee. That region of Galilee, if you remember, is the northern part of the current nation of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And it was many, many days that Jesus spent teaching in that place from Capernaum. But he also told his disciples, we're going to go to other towns and villages all throughout Galilee because the message needs to be heard by them also. So he stopped teaching them At the end of chapter 7, we found Jesus coming down from the mountain. And in chapter 8, we begin to see some of the things that Matthew points out to us that are of great relevance. Because not only was he a great teacher, but Matthew also wanted to emphasize that Jesus had power to do miracles. And that was important to the Jewish mind, and it should be important to all of us as well, because that's what the Old Testament Scriptures found specifically in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, that the Messiah would come and He would heal their infirmities and their sicknesses. He would deliver them from all of their troubles, their uh, uh, problems that they were facing physically, as well as feeding them with the spiritual food that He was giving to them in the teaching of his word. So there were many who were sick that were brought to him. And we looked at that last time. We looked in the first part of chapter 8 with the various things that Jesus is said to have done. Not only the things that he said now, but the things that he has done. He had power over those who were sick. He had power to heal the centurion's servant from A distance. He wasn't even near the servant when he said to the centurion, your faith has made him well. He touched the leper. Nobody in their right mind as a faithful Jew would touch the unclean leper, but Jesus touched him and made him whole. He touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand to heal her of the fever that she had. He had power over sickness. And that was demonstrated to us by Matthew recording those various things. But not only does he have power over sickness, he also is going to be shown by Matthew in this portion that we're reading today that he has power over nature. And he also has power over the spiritual realm. All of that to demonstrate that he is indeed the one that was prophesied who should come on behalf of the people of God to save them from their sins. All of the Jews knew that there was a Messiah coming to this world and he had credentials that he had to demonstrate. And certainly this is what Jesus has been doing. He's demonstrating his power over every realm. And as we look at this passage that we're looking at today, there's also something else that I want us to be mindful of. There are certain of those who have heard his words. They consider themselves to be disciples of Jesus. They were interested in what Jesus had to say. And so they wanted to follow Jesus. And we're going to see that as we see Matthew developing this particular idea, this concept of who it is that was drawn to Jesus. 
And we'll see, I pray, that it includes a wide spectrum of various personalities and individuals. And for some it was a good thing. Others, not so good. So let's turn in Matthew's Gospel. And we'll begin reading with verse 18. Chapter 8, verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now before we move any further in this reading of today's message, I want to back up to verse 16 where Matthew tells us this one thing. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all that were sick. So Matthew doesn't really talk at all about this issue of demon possession until later on in this chapter. But I want you to be mindful of the fact that Matthew is, is here recording the fact that he has power over sickness and he has power also over the demonic realm. And before we get to that, he's going to demonstrate that he has power over nature in a wonderful way, that Matthew ties all of this together. But in the midst of discussing the power of Christ to do all of these things, he introduces these two individuals who come to Jesus, who are his disciples. They had been listening to what he has been saying. One of them is a scribe. Now, a scribe in that day was a man who knew God's Word well because he was given responsibility to record the Word of God, letter by letter, and it was for the purpose of making copies of the entire Word of God. And they were very meticulous about these things. They would be very careful to write each letter one at a time, obviously, but making sure that it's an identical copy of what they were copying from, so that they were transmitting the Word of God to a new copy that could be passed on to others. That's how they distributed the Word of God to all of the various synagogues. It was the responsibility of the scribes to do that. So this man was a man who knew the Word of God. The Old Testament Scriptures were very, very commonly known by these scribes, and he would have known that the Messiah was promised through the prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and, and all of the others and Zechariah and Zephaniah, everybody that came before them as Old Testament prophets, all of the Psalms that were written, all of them about Jesus the Messiah, not by name, but by title, the Messiah. He was always revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures, and they knew what portions of Scripture spoke of Him. And this scribe, now coming into Capernaum, he hears about this man named Jesus. And he decides, I'm going to listen to what this man has to say. Now, we're not told whether he was on the mount with his disciples that were there on the mount to listen directly to the Sermon on the Mount, but it seems very logical to conclude that he had heard either the messages from another place or had seen the miracles in Capernaum. So that by the time it is recorded by Matthew, here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, this scribe is a follower of Jesus Christ. He considers himself to be a disciple. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you wherever you go. I'm convinced that you are a teacher from God and I want to learn from you. He's a scribe and he's supposed to be teaching others, but he wants to learn from this man. This is quite an honor that he is bestowing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to follow you. And Jesus answered to him, must have shaken him, because Jesus basically says, it requires a commitment. You need to understand, if you truly want to follow me, you've got to be fully committed. 
And I submit to you that that's a message that every one of us needs to understand and apply in our own lives. Because full obedience requires full commitment. Now this man was expressing an intention. Good intentions are wonderful. You know, when Peter and James and John and the other apostles were in the place where Jesus was finally captured, in Gethsemane, remember... They fell asleep while Jesus was praying. More than once. And Jesus came to them and He said, Can you not pray with me one hour? And He said something very, very important. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh couldn't keep them awake. They couldn't stay awake because of their physical limitations. They had good intentions. They wanted to stay awake. They wanted to pray, but they fell asleep. They couldn't. And I would remind you that that's no different than any one of us. If we just live by good intentions, we're not going to be able to have complete, full commitment. Because good intentions is when the Spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. But when you're committed, the flesh is crucified. And there's a big difference. Paul tells us we need to be willing to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. And he himself said, I have come to this place where I have trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He died for me. He suffered for me. He was raised from the dead for me. And he knew that was so important to all believers and especially to himself that he lived every day with the knowledge that he was no longer living as he once had lived. And he goes on to say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the One who died, loved me, and gave Himself for me. That's the kind of commitment that God, through Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, is expecting of all of us as well. And He's expecting that of this young scribe that comes before him and says, I'll follow you. I'm committing myself. I intend to at least. But Jesus says, look, if you're really truly going to do that, if you're going to be fully committed to following me, then you need to understand, I don't have a bed to lay on at night. I don't have any really special place that I can go to. The birds have nests. The foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Do you want to make sure that you are willing to commit to that? To follow that kind of man who has nothing to offer in the physical realm, but everything to offer in the spiritual. Now, we're not told what this young man's answer was. I'd love to believe that he continued to follow Jesus, but we aren't told that. We don't know for certain. But it makes really, really good sense for us to understand that that statement that Jesus made to this scribe applies to all of us as well. Full commitment. Obedience requires full commitment. Let us never forget that. And then the second man comes up, also a disciple, we're told by Matthew. He says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. I want to follow you, but Jesus' answer to him is, let the bed, dead bury their dead. That sounds very, very, well, mean, doesn't it? Would it upset you if you were told by Jesus when you said, I want to follow you, and he turned to you and looked you in the eye and he said, let the, bed, let the dead bury the dead? I'm thinking of bed for some reason. I, 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 there's another story that's coming up about bed, so I'm, I'm confusing the two, actually. Let the dead bury their dead. Wow. Why would Jesus say that? Doesn't that sound unfeeling to you? My father's dying or has died, and I want to go home and bury him. Well, that's not the case at all. In that day, and it's still true today, When a Jewish man died, he was always buried on that same day. And it wasn't right for any family member to go wandering off if a person in the family had died. They are to be with the family until the burial. So there's no doubt that this man was not saying, 
my father is dead. What he was saying is, I'll follow you when my father does die. After that, then I'll come follow you. But for now, because my father is the patriarch of our family, I sit under his authority, and I don't want to upset my father by going off and following somebody else. I want to honor my father, and that was his intent. He said, I don't want to go yet, but I'll go later. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me now. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to understand, I'm looking for full submission. To the first, he said, I'm looking for full commitment. To this one, he's saying, in a sense, I'm looking for submission, complete submission to his authority, to his position as the very Son of God. If you are wanting to follow Jesus, you've got to understand that you leave everything behind. If anything is more important to you than Jesus, then you're not truly submitted to Jesus. That's what this young man was having to face. The challenge that Jesus is giving to him is a challenge that all of us need also to look into with our own hearts and think about whether or not we have made that kind of submissive decision to follow him no matter what. Full submission is something that Jesus is expecting of all of us. If we're to be fully obedient, it's not easy. But that's exactly what Jesus had said, remember, on the Sermon of the Mount? There's a narrow way, few there be that find it, but it is a difficult way, it's filled with challenges. It's not an easy road. It's the road that we all should take, but it's not going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be without its challenges, without its difficulties, without its tribulation and trials, and without its persecution. It is very likely that you and I who follow Jesus in the way that Jesus prescribes to these men, if we are successful in committing ourselves to that kind of belief, in what He is capable of, if we are willing to submit ourselves to that kind of requirement that He puts upon all of us to love as He has loved, to serve with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that's what He's looking for. He's looking for full commitment, but He's looking for full submission to His authority and His commands that we are to be obedient in every way, to all of these things, in order to be His true disciples. To follow Jesus is something that is not that easy sometimes. So are we willing to continue in that following of Him? Again, we're not told whether either of these two men followed Jesus as they said they would like to do. I'd love to believe that they were part of this next part of the story. Because in following Jesus, now we're finding out that Matthew is going to show what following Jesus can be like. And so he says in verse 23, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. His disciples. Now we're not told how many. How many boats were involved? We don't know how many people were in each of the boats. We don't know who these disciples were by name. We just know that disciples of Jesus went with Him. They were those who were making that kind of commitment. Jesus said, said we're going to go to the other side. We find that in other Gospel records. Matthew simply records that he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. But Matthew doesn't give us the details that Luke and Mark give us. And it's helpful to look at their part of their gospel record that fills in the gaps. Jesus had said to his disciples while he was there in Capernaum, we need to go tell others in other communities. I mentioned that earlier. And that's what his intent perhaps was in this venture. We're going to go to the other side. Perhaps it was his intent to begin ministering to all the various communities on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, where he was, is on the northwest 
of the Sea of Galilee. So it's very likely that his intent was to go there on the eastern side to the various villages and communities on that side of the great Sea of Galilee. But I think it's more likely that Jesus had one specific thing in mind. There was somebody that needed help on the other side of that sea. And Jesus was going to demonstrate his power through that one individual. And also, to the disciples who were with him in the boat, he's going to demonstrate the fact that following him can be difficult, but it's so, so very worth your while. Listen to what it says here. Verse 24 says, Suddenly, that word means suddenly, in an instant, in a moment of time, things were fine in the boat for a while, but suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But, this is beautiful, Jesus was asleep. He was in the back of the boat, sawing his ease. It didn't bother him that the waves became suddenly overwhelming. Now we're talking about many of these used to the Sea of Galilee as fishermen knowing exactly what to expect on that Sea of Galilee. And by the way, that kind of tempest is common. Even today, people talk about the fact that on a very calm, hot day, you can be in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and there's beautiful water all around you, ripples perhaps, but nothing at all threatening. And then all of a sudden, the wind comes along and brings great waves, crushing waves. We've been told by some people who have studied this phenomenon on the Sea of Galilee that sometimes the waves get as high as 25 feet in height. That's good surfing waves, but it's not a very good kind of water to be in a boat. They were fearful. It shook them up. Even the best of their crew that knew how to maneuver in such things were afraid. But he was asleep. You might think, well, how is it that anybody could sleep in such a sudden torment, a torrent of, of waves? Well, Jesus is just like any one of us, in the flesh at least. His body needed rest. He had been ministering all night, healing the sick, casting out demons ministering to them in many, many different ways. Of course he was tired. And I don't doubt one moment that he was sound asleep. Remember when Peter was arrested for preaching the Word of God? This would be after the resurrection of Christ. He was put in jail. And the people of God were praying hard for Peter. And they were fearful that he was going to lose his life. But in the middle of the night... We're told in the book of Acts that Peter, having fallen asleep, was awakened by an angel. Now, Peter was knowing that if he didn't get something of a miracle to deliver him from the situation, that he was going to lose his life. But he fell asleep. How can anybody fall asleep whenever you have such very, very pressing, concerning things in your mind? Have you ever had your mind just overwhelmed with all kinds of problems and difficulties and situations that are, are so, so bad that you just can't close your eyes, you can't fall asleep because you're always thinking about that. Well, neither Jesus nor Peter had that problem, apparently. Because they trusted in the Father to such an extent that they didn't even have a fear of what men can do to them. But in Jesus' case, it wasn't a fear of men because he feared no man. It wasn't at all a problem for Jesus as it was a problem for the men who were with him. I believe Jesus knew that that storm was going to come. And it may be that it was caused by Satan. There are some who would argue that point, and I'm not going to belabor that issue at all, but what I am saying is the storm was severe. As a matter of fact, the original Greek language that we have our English translated from uses the word seismos in the Greek and that is what we use for seismology in our 
English word of the study of earthquakes. It was like a tremor. It was such a powerful event. It was like an earthquake on the sea. A great tempest arose. Verse 25 says, Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. They knew they couldn't save themselves. They knew they couldn't deliver themselves. They were trying to bail out, but they weren't successful. The water was coming in faster than they could push it out. Save us, we're perishing. They thought they were going down. They're in the middle of the lake in a strong tempest. They had no hope to survive this. That was the impression that Matthew was giving us here. The followers that came with Jesus, the disciples, have chosen to be followers of Him and now they find themselves in the midst of a storm and it looks like their lives are going to be ending soon. So much for committing yourself to following this man. So much for committing yourself to doing what you thought was God's will by following Jesus, the one you thought might be more than just a prophet who was a great teacher, and you wanted to learn more about what he had to say, but I wasn't signing up for this. Oh yes, they were. And there's a reason for their having experienced that threat of life, because it says in verse 26, Jesus said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Now, I don't know what tone it was that Jesus spoke those words. Perhaps it had to have been almost shouting those words because of the storm around them. Why are you so fearful, you men of little faith? I don't think he said it angrily, though. He must have said it with such a wonderful attitude of love, as is his way always whenever he rebukes his children. Always does it in love. But he rebukes them. Why are you so fearful, you of little faith? Remember, not long before that, he had praised the centurion for having great faith. And now he's telling his disciples, the ones who have chosen to follow him, the ones who have committed themselves to and submitting themselves to him. Oh, you of little faith. What a contrast. But then... The latter part of verse 26, it says, Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You see, Jesus needed to demonstrate, not only does he have power over the sick, not only does he have power over the demons, which we will look at next, but he has power over all of nature. You can read Psalm 107. It's a beautiful psalm. Over and over, the psalmist says in, verse, in chapter Uh, 107 of the book of Psalms, Oh, that men would thank the Lord for His mercy and for His wonderful works. It says in verse 25 of Psalm 107, He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. That's where these followers of Jesus were. Every one of them were feeling this kind of sense of absolute despair. And then, verse 28, it says, Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Who's He talking about here? He's talking about Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty. And this is Jesus in the presence of the New Testament record that we've just read in that same kind of storm on the Sea of Galilee speaking to the wind and the waves to bring a total calmness. And I remind you again, as we've read here in chapter 8, verse 26, He arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. In the other Gospel records, Luke especially tells us instantly, Mark says, Immediately, the sea was like glass. That doesn't happen in the natural realm. But this one who speaks this word to the sea and to the wind, they must obey him because he has power over all of nature. That's the wonderful message here in this portion of Scripture. His power is great, much more powerful than anything any man has ever done or ever will be able to do. 
Psalm 89 also speaks of this power. It says in verse 9 of Psalm 89, You, Lord God, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. This is Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, manifest in the flesh, here as a Son of God, presenting Himself to His Jewish family. And He's saying to them, I have that power that was manifest by the Lord God Almighty in the Old Testament. I do these things so that you can know I am He. And their response, verse 27, the men marveled. Same word that was used of Jesus when he marveled at the centurion's faith. They were in wonder, in awe. They marveled at what they just had experienced. And they said amongst themselves, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Who can this be? Why would they ask that question? If they knew the Scripture, it would be immediate that they should have thought, The Messiah is among us. This is the power of God. It cannot be explained any other way. When Jesus spoke of Himself, look back at verse 20 for a moment. His answer to the uh, scribe Again, with foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But I want you to take note of the fact that he says of himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, and he does that some 80 times in the New Testament gospel records, he's not just talking about the fact that he was the son of Joseph, because he wasn't the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary. But God, the Father was his father, not Joseph. So he's not referring to his genealogy as a Jew. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Definite article. It's a reference to something that they should have picked up on from the Old Testament Scripture, the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, we find Daniel seeing a vision in heaven. And he says, I saw one like the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne, and then one like the Son of Man, coming in power. That is the one that Jesus is referring to when He calls Himself the Son of Man. He's referring to the message that was given through Daniel of the Messiah who would be standing in the place of authority. Because it tells us there, He was given authority in Daniel, given authority and power, and He will come in the clouds. This is what Jesus will say about Himself. Before He's crucified, He faces the Sanhedrin. He faces all the Pharisees. He faces all of those who were opposed to Him. And He said, You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He identified Himself as the Son of Man because it was a direct reference to His deity as the very Messiah who was to come. There's no question in the mind of anyone who would be willing to connect the dots to recognize that Jesus is acknowledging He is the Son of God. In fact, in John's Gospel, the Pharisees recognized that that's exactly what He was saying. Because when He referred to Himself as the Son of Man in their presence, they argued, you're making yourself to be the Son of God. They knew that phrase, Son of Man, was a messianic reference in the book of Daniel. They didn't agree with it. They didn't understand it. They didn't want to believe it, but it was true. So is he worth following in a commitment and submission that is expected of him? I say yes, because he is a very God in the person of a man. You can't explain that. You can only believe that. But if you believe that, you can follow Him. But if you follow Him, you need to understand it involves commitment. You need to understand it involves submission. Perfect obedience 
requires both. So he has power over nature. He has power over sickness. Lastly, we'll look together at his power over the spiritual realm. Verse 28 continues and says, When he had come to the other side, remember, he had planned to go, and the storm wasn't going to stop him. They should have believed when Jesus said, We're going to the other side. Well, yeah, we're going to the other side. We'll make it there. No matter what might happen between point A and point B, that's insignificant as far as Jesus is concerned. He can handle all of those difficulties. If he says one thing here about something else that's going to be here, then you can trust that he's going to make it to that place. And if you're willing, you can go with him. It may not be easy, but remember, he promised that. The narrow way is not easy. It's difficult. They went through that storm, but they didn't drown in the waters. They hit that trial with fear and trembling, but they came out of it with rich fulfillment, realizing who it was, at least perhaps they began to realize who it was that was with them in the boat. But he needs to demonstrate more still to those who were following him. So in verse 28, when he had come to the other side to the country of the Gergesenes, They met him, two demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These are the demons speaking through this demon-possessed man to Jesus. He comes before them. He doesn't introduce himself to them say, Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. That didn't happen. They recognized who he was when he approached them. They knew somehow that this was not just a man. And when they looked into his eyes, they realized this is the Son of God. And they proclaimed it. What have we to do to you, Jesus, thou Son of God? Have you come to punish us before the time? They knew their destiny. They knew that they are going to eventually be put into a place of eternal judgment. They didn't want that to happen just yet. They didn't expect it to happen just yet. That's why they're saying, have you come to do this before our time? They were expecting a time far off and wondering, why are you here? Why are you here to... Do what you're going to do if it isn't for that one purpose. Jesus did have a purpose. He wanted to deliver those two men from that demonic activity that was tormenting them for so long. They were living in caves among the dead, we're told in the other Gospels as well. Totally defiled from a Jewish point of view. Nobody can explain how demons can possess any individual. But I want you to understand this one thought. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and there is absolutely no way at all for any demon to enter into a person who is a child of God. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you have Him who lives in you, and greater is He who lives in you than He who is in the world. That means that there is no way that you can be possessed by demonic activity. On the other hand, they can be active in your life if you're not fully committed to following Jesus, if you're not committed to and submitted to Him you're leaving yourself wide open for demonic activity from without. They can't come in, but they can do harm. They can torment you. They can cause you difficulties. They can help somehow the situations that you have to face and bring some kind of terrible onslaught of fear to those who aren't trusting in Jesus. But keep in mind this one thing. Perfect love casts out all fear. So you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in doubtfulness. You don't have to live in uncertain times, trembling over the various things that might be coming down against you. Whether it's spiritual attack or other things that you yourself have caused, whatever that situation may be, you should know that there is deliverance from those things because you have a loving God who wants to give you 
all that you need to live for Him, who wants to give exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think to those who trust in Him. And there's nothing that can come against you as a believer. Nothing. That's what the Word of God tells us. Read chapter 8 of Romans. It's a wonderful chapter of promise. It begins with, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, Who can separate us from the love of God? Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nobody, nothing can harm you if you are in Christ Jesus. Well, they can take your physical body and you can be suffering with the greatest of infirmities and some do but the bottom line is they can't touch your soul that's what's important to all of us who believe our souls eternal our souls are his and Satan can't take that from you Nothing can separate you. But Jesus comes across these two. With His disciples following Him, they get out of the boat, and immediately these demon-possessed men approach Jesus. And the demons speak out again through this demon-possessed man, or both of them, and what have we to do with you? Have you come to torment us before the time? You realize what is being said here is the devils believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the very Son of God. James tells us, Oh, you believe in God? You do well. The devils do also, and they tremble. And that's a great example of the fact that they do tremble before Him in His presence. They were trembling with great fear of what He was about to do. The verse 30 says, Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine, pigs, feeding. So the demons begged Him, saying, If you cast us out, there's no doubt that he was going to, but they said, if you're going to do that, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Permit us to go away to this herd of swine. I don't have an answer to your questions about possessing swine and what benefit that might be to the demons. Not only do I not have an answer to that, but I don't have an answer to what happens next. It says in verse 32, He said to them, Go. He agreed to let them come out of that man because that was what He wanted, but to allow them to go into the swine was also permitted by Him. Now some would argue that, well, Jesus didn't really say, Go into the swine, so therefore it wasn't Jesus' will that they did that, but they did it anyway to spite Jesus. I don't get that kind of thought. I just think that Jesus said, Go, and they did exactly as they had requested. Send us into that herd of swine. Permit us to go. And they did go. Because Jesus said go. If Jesus says go, then you go. If Jesus says stay, then you stay. If Jesus says wait, then you wait. They're a great example of obedience to the command of Jesus. Let us do the same. But he said go. So then they did come out of that man, or those two men. And they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Mark tells us there were some 2,000 pigs in this herd. The location of this event, listed here as the area of the Gergesenes, in Mark's Gospel he uses the word Gadarenes, so there's some confusion as to what exactly was the location. But there's really only one place on that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee where there is a ridge near the body of water called the Sea of Galilee that would be high enough for that event to have taken place. And it is in the area of a town that was known as the town of the Gadarenes in that day, about six miles southeast of that eastern shore. But the whole area around that region was known as the area of the Gergesenes. I don't know why, but that was just the name that was chosen to describe that region. 
So both of them are correct in their description of where this was. But it was on the southeastern shore, and you can go to the Sea of Galilee and see that particular location. It's the only one of its kind along the shores of the Sea of Galilee where that possibly could have taken place. They go into the swine, and the swine just run for the cliff and jump off. Why would the demons do that? If they went into the swine, wouldn't they want the swine to continue living? Well, again, I can't answer that question. I can give you some suggestions as a possibility, but I'm not going to bother you with that kind of detail. I just want you to know that something miraculous just took place. That Jesus delivered those men, those two men who were tormented by apparently a large number of demonic activity, and they were taken out without Anything more than a simple word, go. Power over the demonic realm. Power over nature. Power over sickness. We're not going to get there today, but when we start into chapter 9, we see that Jesus has power over something of greater importance than any of those that I've mentioned. And all the followers of Jesus Christ who have observed His teaching, they followed Him because He was a great teacher. They observed the miracles of healing. They followed Him because He was a healer. They observed the power of Jesus over nature. They continued to follow Him because He had a power that only God could have. They followed him after he healed the demonic spirits and delivered them from those two poor men. They followed him because nobody could do such things unless you were the very Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Master of all. He was there in their midst. They were beginning to see that. They were beginning to understand that. But did all of them continue? Did they all of them stay with him throughout his entire ministry? The answer to that is simply no. Not all of them did. He had many disciples. And though they had seen all of those miracles, they had heard all of that wonderful preaching, they had seen him deliver the people from all of their troubles. There came a time when Jesus had a great number of disciples around him. And he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger or thirst. And he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when he said those words, many of them departed and would not follow him any longer. They couldn't handle that. What do you mean, eat my flesh and drink my blood? They thought that this guy was no longer worthy of their commitment to follow him. He was no longer worthy of their willingness to submit to his authority. He was saying something that was way beyond what they were willing to accept. How about you? How about us? Are we willing to follow Jesus? He turned to others of his disciples, his apostles, and he said, will you leave also? And Peter, one of the most brilliant things that Peter did, and it was by the power of the Spirit of God, the Father spoke to him. And he said these words, Where can we go? It's you who have the words of life. We'll follow you. We're committed. We aren't going to leave. Now listen, when it came to the point of standing for Jesus, Peter was the one who denied him three times. He was committed. He was submitting to Jesus. He had said, I'm going to go wherever you go and I'll die for you. But when it came to the point where that was a likelihood, he balked. But you know what? Jesus knew that that was going to happen. And when Peter said, I'm not going to leave you. Those, these guys will. I'm not going to. Peter just said, I'm committed to you. 
I will go to the very death with you. Jesus said, will you, Peter? Before the cock throws three times, you're going to deny me three times. And he did. But he also said this to Peter, and when you recover from this, and when you are strengthened, Jesus says, I want you to strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus knew that Peter wouldn't be able to keep that commitment that he had made. But he also knew that with the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter would be willing to go to the cross just like he did. And he would live for Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of God comes in that day after the resurrection. Jesus knew this. Peter didn't. But because we have this Word of God today, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that each one of us can hold on to these things and realize that in our present day, in whatever situation we may have to be facing, there is still the promise to us that He made to Peter in that day. You and I are His if we have been given life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing can take it away. Nothing. So live for Him. Committed to Him. And if you should happen to fall, it's not that it's okay, but you can still come to Him and seek His help, forgiveness, and know that it is there. It's always available. Everybody who names the name of Jesus, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, regenerated, born again, by the Spirit of God, we, all of us, have that same hope. Oh, let us live for Him in these last days and let us trust Him to carry us through to the end.